Thank you, Julie. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the good, good gifts of a beautiful day and a wonderful community and your beautiful word. And we ask um, that you would open it to us now, that you would give us ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that respond to your word for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor on staff here, and I've, I think I've shared this a few times up front, but as many of you, I think, know, uh, I came to faith a little later in life, uh, after high school. And I remember uh, at that time, that decision uh, to follow Jesus being an easy one for me. And I, I mean, to be, to be clear, it took years and years of God preparing me for that moment, Uh, But I remember it felt very simple. I choose Jesus. That moment felt very simple for me. And his offer of forgiveness and grace, when I finally understood it, it was better than anything else I had experienced or I could imagine. Um, And it was as if God was asking me, Andrew, do you want me in your life? And my response was, yes, yes, I do. I want you in my life. But the interesting thing is, as I was reflecting on that, that wasn't the last time I had to answer that question. And a few years later, I found myself uh, facing the tragic death of a friend, something I could not explain, something I could not wrap my faith around easily, something I was sure God could have fixed. He could have changed it, uh, but he didn't. And I found myself wrestling with the exact same question. Andrew, do you want me in your life, even when your life is hard? Even when I challenge you, when I push you, when I meddle with you? Does that make sense? There's a point, I think, in everyone's life, in your journey of faith, whether, where you have to ask yourself, do we really want Jesus in our lives? Now, you're at church right now. I hope you know. So I presume uh, most of you would answer yes to that question. Yes, I do. But it's not as easy a question as it sounds. I think for many of us at different points in our lives, some of us well into a, a relationship with God, some of us at the very beginning— When we actually answer that question, what we mean is, yes, I want Jesus in my life if he can keep me comfortable. Or if uh, he can make me happier than I am right now. Or if if he can solve my problems. Do you really want Jesus or do you want something else? It's not an easy question to answer. For Christians, for non-Christians considering Jesus, we all have to answer this question. And in his own subtle way, I think this is the question Jesus is asking in John chapter 5, which we just heard read. We didn't read all of it. I I, I don't want to give away the ending just yet. But this is the question Jesus is asking. Do you really want me in your life or not? Why is this question so hard to answer? Well, let's look. John chapter 5. If you haven't turned there already, you can do that now. John chapter 5. It's the last of the four Gospels. So the story opens, we just heard it read, in ancient Jerusalem. And uh, in one part of, of town in Jerusalem, there was this huge pool surrounded by columns, and it was called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And uh, here's actually a picture of the ruins of this pool today, where they've actually found the pool of Bethesda. So if you go to Jerusalem now, you can actually see this. And uh, that's not very helpful, though, for our, the purposes of our story. So here's something of what we think it looked like at the time of Jesus. So uh, that's about the size of a football field. Those two, it's one pool kind of divided in the middle. Huge pool. So you imagine this pool, and it is wall-to-wall sad. It is wall-to-wall desperate. 
filled with sick, injured, neglected people. A multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's how John puts it. Standing room only if you could stand. Legend had it that an angel would swoop down and stir up the water, and whoever got in the pool first, they would be healed. And you'll see that in verse 4, which most of your Bibles will actually footnote. We're pretty sure John did not write that explanation of the pool because his original audience would have understood. So someone came along later and tried to explain why are all these people standing around a pool? Anyway, the whole thing sounds like a cruel trick. It sounds like a, like a bad Monty Python movie, doesn't it? The blind and the lame and the paralyzed are all striving to be first in the water with wishes of healing. It's awful. It's a sad picture. But, but out of all those people, there are probably hundreds of people around this pool. John tells us Jesus arrives and he finds one. A paralyzed or crippled man of 38 years, most of which was no doubt spent around this pool of mercy. And of all things, Jesus walks up to this guy and he asks him this question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? And I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around really the audacity and stupidity of that question on its face, right? Do you want to be well? So think about it this way. Where were you 38 years ago? 1976. I had to use a calculator, but I did the math. 1976, 38 years ago. Were you elementary school? Just, just out of college? Maybe some of you weren't even born yet. Your parents hadn't even met yet. And you know how old they are, right? This is a long time ago. Think back 38 years, and then slowly in your memory move forward to now. And as you look back on those years, what were the highlights? What are the things that stood out to you? The trips that you took, the experiences that you had, that one great week that you went on this trip, or that, that one day that was just the best day. Think on those things as you slowly move forward to today. Now, how many of them could you have done if you were paralyzed from the waist down? See, now you're beginning to get a picture of this guy's life. And the word John uses here to describe this man, it means weak or shriveled, withered, shrunken, wasting away. And so we aren't talking about a backache or chronic pain or a sprained ankle. These are issues, these are deformities and diseases that people can see on you. Things that come to define you. And keep in mind, this is a time without wheelchair access, there's no special privilege or benefit for, for people in need. There's no legal protection for them. No one admires these people for their bravery and their courage in facing a lifestyle. As far as they were concerned, you had the life you had because you were cursed by the gods. You did not receive help unless someone felt sorry for you. That's this guy's life for 38 years. And Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be well? No, I want to sit here for the rest of my life. Thanks. I'm surprised he even answers Jesus at all and, and doesn't just curse at him or something, but there's something about the way Jesus asks this question that gets this man's attention. What is it? Well, I'm not actually sure, but we get at least two clues, I think, from John. First, the word Jesus uses for well or healed, depending on what translation you're looking at. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? It's an unusual one. See, there's a there's a more generic word in Greek for, for healed. It's the word therapuo. It's where we get our word therapy. And that's the more generic word for healing, right? You have a problem, you have an ailment, you get, it gets treated, and it, and it heals. That's the word you would use there, but it's not the word Jesus uses. 
Jesus uses a word that means complete or sound. And so a better translation of Jesus' question is, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? Second clue, John is sure to tell us that this day of all days was a Sabbath day. You see that in verse 9. Jesus does many healings on the Sabbath day. It's a very common part of his story in all of the Gospels. And this word for whole is used in almost every one of those stories. Every time Jesus heals on the Sabbath, someone is made whole. Sabbath was the day of restoration. It's a picture of God's good world at creation. Before sin enters in, it's a day of rest and wholeness. So Jesus is asking, on the Sabbath day, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? And the man's response is interesting. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He's, like, he's saying, Jesus, I'm always last. Are you, are you here to help me get in the pool? That's the, kind of the implied question. Right? You, you noticed me. Are you going to help me get in the pool? And, the, and I love it because <laughs> the Son of God, the maker of the universe, is talking to him. And he says, hey, can you help me get in the pool? And Jesus is like, I'm not going to help you get in the pool. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately, at once, the man is healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And you can, if you, you could end the story there, couldn't you? This happy ending is coming on. This, for 38 years, this man cannot walk. He gets up. He starts walking. He's strong enough to carry his own mat. You could cue the inspirational music. You could fade out and roll credits. End of the story, but it's not the end of the story. It's not even close. The man gets surrounded by people, which makes sense. He's been there a long time, and people know he shouldn't be walking, so they immediately go to him. And Jesus um, slips away almost unnoticed. So the man, uh, the picture is he, he's going around, he's carrying his mat, only to run into the Jews. Now, when John says the Jews, he means the Jewish religious leaders. It's hard to walk around Jerusalem not running into the Jews. So when he, when he, when he says the Jews, he means the Jewish religious leaders, uh, like the Pharisees or people, people who followed after them, their teaching. And they say to this man, hey, you know the rules. You cannot carry your mat on the Sabbath. Now, that is not a biblical rule of the Sabbath, first of all. They are more concerned with, with one of their made-up rules than they are about this guy walking after 38 years, but that's beside the point, whatever. What happens next reveals a lot about this man. He gets cornered by these religious leaders. These are very powerful people in their day. How does he respond? Well, the first thing he does is he blame shifts. He says, well, the man who healed me, he, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I, I didn't want to do it. He told me to do it. Next, we find out he didn't even ask for Jesus' name. <laughs> who healed you? I, I don't know. You mean the guy who healed you after 38 years of suffering? You didn't, didn't get his business card. You didn't shake his hand. You didn't, didn't even bother, right? Who, I, I don't know. And if you think I'm painting this guy too harshly, watch what happens next. So in verse 14, the, this guy runs into Jesus again at the temple. And actually, John kind of makes it clear, Jesus actually seeks him out and finds him at the temple. And Jesus actually rebukes him. He warns him about the dangerous path he's on. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, Jesus is saying something like, you're going the wrong way. 
I didn't just heal you. I wanted to make you whole. Your sin is still a problem. You aren't responding to this gift the way I wanted you to. Sin no more or something worse may happen to you. Be careful right now. Now put yourself in his shoes. What do you think is the appropriate response in that situation? The man who healed you, he clearly has authority, has miraculous powers. He comes and he finds you. He's restored your life. Imagine all that that means for you. After 38 years, seriously, what would you do? What would you say? Would you thank him? Would you follow him? Would you worship him? Maybe take his warning seriously to stop sinning. You'd, uh, see if you can make good on his promise to heal your whole life, not just your body. I mean, any of those, in my mind, would be an appropriate response. Here's what he actually does. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So one mention of this guy's sin, he's off to find the religious leaders again. He's offended. And he throws Jesus right under the bus. And I just imagined Jesus watching this guy walk away on his good legs, thinking, you're welcome, right? Good luck. I'll be here all day. You know, congratulations. What in the world just happened? What happened? This is a story of someone who, after everything Jesus has done, and everything they've seen and experienced, and everything they've been through, they wanted Jesus' healing, but they did not want his wholeness. Do you want me in your life? This man said, no. Nope. I don't. And it's easy to call him a fool and move on, but we can't, because we've got to know why. Why did this happen? And a good rule uh, when reading the Bible that my uncle once taught me, he said, find the worst character in the story. That's you. We've got to, we have, this is potentially us. Do we want Jesus healing but not his wholeness? When Jesus, not if, but when Jesus comes to us at any stage in our faith and he asks, do you want to be well, how will we respond? What will we say? Well, as I've been thinking about this this week, I we came up with three questions, three little warning signs along the way of this man's blatant indifference to Jesus' offer. And I don't want to miss this. So how do we learn from his example? How do we learn? And all of these questions, these three questions, they're related, but they hit people differently depending on where you are and who you are. So some of us need this first question. This first question, here it is. Do you want help or do you want wholeness? Do you want help? Or do you want wholeness? Now, this is a theme we hit on over and over again in the Bible. We see it over and over again in our preaching. You've heard it over and over again, but it bears repeating. This man wants help. He wants to walk, and I can't blame him. Jesus gives him that and then offers him much, much, much more. He offers wholeness, and the man does not want it. He wanted help. He wanted an easier life. He wanted a better life. He wanted an improved life, but he did not want a new life. He did not want a whole life. Not the kind of life Jesus offered him. He wanted a tweak to what he already had. He did not want transformation altogether. So do you really want to change? Do you want to change? This is at the heart of Jesus' question. Do you want it? Or is it easier to stay where you are, even if you don't like where you are? Is it easier to stay? And it feels like a ludicrous question. 
until you enter a profession where you deal with hurting people all the time because you will get a version of this question from every counselor, every therapist, every financial planner, and every pastor when you approach them with the same problems over and over and over again. Do you want to be well or not? Are you ready for transformation and for wholeness? Or do you just want a quick fix, a quick patch, until the next time we have this conversation? Do you want a tweak to what you're already doing? What do you want? Do you want help? Or do you want wholeness? And a story illustrates the point. It's from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's a former Oxford professor, atheist turned Christian. We, we use him all the time here. It's in his book, of uh, the great divorce. And, and the, the whole story of the great divorce is, is a fantasy. It's an allegory of heaven and hell. It's, it's like a modern day Dante's Inferno. And there's a man uh, between heaven and hell who walks around with this annoying lizard on his shoulder who's always whispering things to him. And it never shuts up. It never leaves him alone. And it, you know from the context of the story, it's a personification of his lust, his problem with lust. And an angel comes over to him, to this man, and offers to silence the lizard forever. And the man says, oh yes, please make it stop. And the angel says, okay, then I'm going to kill it. The angel moves toward him and begins to reach out his hands. And the man stops and he says, that hurts. What are you doing? The closer he gets. And the angel says back, don't you want it killed? Is that what you want? And the man replies, well, you, you didn't say anything about killing it. Nothing so drastic as all that. I just want it to be quiet. I just, it's just so embarrassing. And the angel keeps saying, do you, do you want me to kill it? Can I kill it? Oh, oh, on and on and on. Excuse after excuse, refusing to be whole. He wants help, but he does not want wholeness. Jesus did not come to make decent people better. He came to make dead people live. And at first glance, you might say, of course I want to be transformed. I want to be made whole. But do you really... Do I really? Your finances, can God have those? Your job, your kids, your anger, your free time, your friends, your work time, can he have all those things? Total control. Do you want that? That's his offer. And it's not as easy a question as it sounds. And some of us wonder why we never change. Sometimes I think the answer is that we don't really want to. We don't want to. We don't want wholeness. I want to walk a little taller, but I do not want the pain of taking up my cross and following him. But that's Jesus. That's, you can take it or leave it. That's his offer. The paralyzed man leaves it. But what about you? What about me? Do we want help? Or do we want wholeness? Second question that some of you need to ask. It's related to the first one, but it's a little different. Here it is. Do you want relief or do you want rescue? Do you want relief or do you want rescue? Imagine you have um, a dislocated shoulder, and uh, some of you have felt that before. I've heard it's just excruciating. I'm not active enough to actually have ha had that problem, but <laughs> I've, heard it's, I've heard it's terrible. So imagine your shoulder's dislocated. I could give you lots and lots of pain meds, enough to make you feel better. And the pain could go away or it could at least be reduced. You could experience some measure of relief. But it would not solve your problem. Your arm is still completely useless. It's dead. The joint has to be reset. And that might end up hurting more than dislocating it did. But that's the only way to solve your 
real problem. Do you want relief or rescue? Here's another way of looking at it. The indifferent man in our text this morning is convinced that his biggest problem in life is his legs. Convinced. He organizes his entire life around fixing that problem. Right? He sits around the pool waiting to hit the jackpot. And that feels legitimate. And maybe you think your biggest problem is your marriage or your work or your money or your kids or your health. That list could go on and on. What keeps you up at night is what worries you all day long. And you just want God to fix it. Just fix it. That's all you want. And maybe that's why you're even here this morning. And let me be clear, all of those are legitimate problems. They are. And we're glad that you're here, and Jesus is glad that you're here, and I hope and I pray that you find relief from him as he offers it to this paralyzed man. He does. But Jesus will not leave you there. The gospel always goes deeper, and the lesson of this story is this. Your biggest problem is not your problems. Your biggest problem is not your problems. Jesus does not look at the man. He's just healed and say, well, that's it. You're done. You've arrived. Congratulations. He goes, he finds this man, and what does he say? He says, sin no more. Sin no more. Your biggest problem is not your problems. It's your sin. That's what Jesus is warning us. Jesus is more than powerful enough to deal with your problems. And that will give you a measure of relief but it's not the rescue from your real problem that you need. When left to our own devices, here's here's what sin really is. We will always choose to willfully disobey our God and that will always, in every case, destroy our lives. And it will destroy the things that we love the most. That is what sin does. That is our problem. And if you don't believe that, if we don't believe that, if we don't accept that, if we think our problems are our biggest problem, then at least two things will happen. First, we will find that there is always, 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 always another problem. Jesus fixed my finances. Even if he does that, you'll find that your marriage has begun falling apart. Your kids want nothing to do with you. Your job isn't fulfilling anymore. Whatever it is, something else will come along and you are right back where you started. The second thing that will happen, if you think your biggest problem is your problems, you will sell Jesus out even after he's helped you, just like this guy does. If you think it will solve your next problem, you will sell him out. You will abandon him. You will ignore him. You will leave him in the dust because he doesn't want to just fix your problems. He wants to fix your problem. He can't just give you the relief that you want because he came to give you the rescue that you need. Do you want relief from your problems or rescue from your sin? That's the question Jesus asked this indifferent paralyzed man and he's asking us the same thing. Do you want relief or do you want rescue? Okay, last question. If we want to avoid rejecting Jesus the way this guy does, we have to ask this question too. Do you want something or do you want someone? Do you want something Or do you want someone? Do you want Jesus or only what he can give you? For example, I meet periodically with engaged couples and often ask why they want to get married. And if if they responded something like, well, I really need someone to clean up after me. (laughs) I want someone to make me feel better about myself. 
I want someone to make me not feel so lonely. That would not be a very good sign. It's completely selfish. It's not a relationship. It's a terrible way to start your marriage. And yet I can do the same thing with Jesus. Because every one of us has our pool of Bethesda. Every one of us. This pool in our story, it's a picture of human superstition and desperation. It's a pathetic picture, really. And our, our, when we read a story like this, our modern sensitivities kick in, right? And we know it's stupid to trust in a, in a pool to change your life. But we have our pools. Make no mistake. We have our superstitions. We have our idols. We have things that we are waiting on, things we are pining for. If I could just get X, then I will be happy. Then my life will be complete. If only my spouse would change, if only my job would get better, if only my kids, if only my health, if I could just get in the pool first, everything would change for me. My life would be better. We're waiting for an angel to disturb the water, to hit the jackpot, to win the lottery, and then it'll all be okay. And Jesus is standing next to us, and he's talking to us, and we so often look at him and say, oh Jesus, thank goodness you're here can you help me get in the pool? Can you help me get in the pool? And this story, it's not just a story of one man's encounter with Jesus. It is so much more than that. It's a picture of the world. Our whole world. The world is full of broken and desperate people. You can't always see it, but it's there. And we all sit around this magic pool waiting for our shot waiting for our chance to bring the good fortune we think that we need, we think we deserve, and we've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Just sitting there. And God has always been there asking us, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? And if we just don't see it. We want something. We don't want someone. But that is our choice. This is the biblical view. Every human person sitting around the pool, every human person in this life has two options, the pool or God. You can have superstition or faith, chance or trust, fate or providence, something or someone. You can live your life staring at the water, waiting and waiting and waiting, or you can turn to Jesus and you can say, I want to be well. It's not that easy, but it is that simple. So what do we want? Do we want something? Or are we ready for someone? Are we ready for someone who knows us, he knows our deepest sin, and he offers us wholeness anyway? What will we choose? Do you want Jesus? Do you really want him in your life? Or is there something else? Now here's the thing. The thing we've been missing for this entire sermon, all the while we've been asking Do you really want Jesus in your life? But that's only half the story. What is also so clear in this text, and none of us can miss this, do you want Jesus in your life because Jesus so desperately and so inexplicably wants you in his? Just like he does at the pool, John has shown us, Jesus comes into our world. He just shows up into our lives, into our hopeless and desperate case, uninvited, unnoticed, and unwanted. And he comes and he sees the man that nobody sees and he heals the man that no one can heal and he loves and pursues the man who could care less. Do you see that? 
Jesus wants you in his life even if you don't want him in yours. He does. Should that not give us pause? Isn't that basic truth of the gospel worth thinking about, worth considering? Isn't he better than a band-aid for your problems and your worries? You've tried that. Is he not more real and present than even our deepest superstitions and idols? Does he not offer so much more than relief, so much better than temporary happiness? Doesn't he? You see, when you consider these things, you cannot remain indifferent to Jesus because you begin to see that he has never been indifferent to you. And he will never be indifferent to you. So what do you want? What do you want? He moved heaven and earth. He went through hell itself on the cross to make you well. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Do you want him? Or do you want something else? Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often our hearts want something other than you. And that we design our whole lives around that something. And it just never works out. God, give us hearts that long for you. That long for your wholeness. That long for your rescue. And long for your son above all things. We know if we aim our lives at you, you will give us all good things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.